peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. An adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Regardless of your feelings about Star Wars, there is no denying the sense of wonder the X-Wing instilled in audiences 40 years ago. It seems closer to the product of a child's hyperactive imagination than anything we might see in the real world, let alone on a battlefield. But with the upcoming sixth generation of fighter jets, yesterday's science fiction may very well be tomorrow's technological fact. Fighter jets have long captured the public imagination as symbols of what human engineering can accomplish. From their humble beginnings with the Messerschmitt Me-262 in the waning years of World War II, to behemoths like the Mikoyan Gurevich MiG-25, which has a 48-foot wingspan, to the vertical takeoff and landing F-35s, each subsequent generation of fighter jets has pushed the envelope further and further. In response to changing battlefields and the evolving nature of military engagement, militaries throughout the world have begun researching and developing the technology for the sixth generation of fighter jets. Gallium nitride sensors, engines producing up to 15 tons of thrust, cyber warfare suites, directed energy weapons. These are just a small sample of the technologies engineers are working to bring into reality for the next generation. Currently, there are a number of countries with a sixth generation fighter jet in development. For example, Japan has the Mitsubishi FX, while the U.S. is working on the Boeing FAXX. Each of these programs is aimed at allowing the respective country to claim aerial superiority and assert market dominance. The UK, on the other hand, is taking a more diplomatic approach with its program. It's working with Italy and Sweden on its BAE Systems Tempest and is using this program as an opportunity to foster long-term trade agreements between the three nations. While fighter jets have been designed to perform multiple tasks on the battlefield since the third generation, including carrying a wide range of weapons such as air-to-ground missiles and laser-guided bombs. The upcoming sixth generation looks to take the multi-role concept to new extremes. For example, the Boeing FAXX is slated to perform a variety of tasks when in service, ranging from air-to-air refueling, reconnaissance, surveillance, electronic warfare, and traditional combat. Due to the nature of modern theaters of war, technology is also in development to allow aircraft to engage in combat at far longer ranges than previously possible. Possible. One example of this are the gallium nitride sensors currently being developed for the Mitsubishi FX. 
Engineers are hoping to utilize the high thermal and chemical stability of gallium nitride to increase the efficacy of the FX's sensors. Each program's engineers are also exploring ways to improve the networking systems of the next generation. For instance, one of the main goals for the FAXX is to increase its communications and sensor technology to the point where it can interface near instantaneously with satellites, other aircraft, and anything else that would provide pilots with real-time battle information. Technology such as this would open up the possibility for pilots to remotely operate their platforms when engaging in sorties. And the US, UK, and Japan are just a few of the programs working to make this scenario possible. Furthering this, the UK's BAE Systems Tempest is also planning to utilize deep learning technology to control a host of swarming drones. But what weapons will the next generation of fighter jets use? In the same way that armaments shifted from guns to missiles from the first to second generations, we could see another shift in the coming generation, from missiles to directed energy weapons. While traditional armaments will always find use on the battlefield, the introduction of this new technology is shaping up to change everything. Directed energy weapons will come in a host of different forms for varying purposes. For instance, less flashy tech such as microwave devices will be utilized to neutralize enemy communication infrastructures or drones. On the other hand, high-energy laser weapons will be used in conjunction with the upgraded network, radar, and sensor systems of the next generation to deliver payloads to precise pinpoint locations with devastating force. Reports state that the BAE Systems Tempest Boeing FAXX and the Mitsubishi FX are planned to be fitted with these futuristic tools of destruction. As directed energy weapons have never been fitted on mass-produced military platforms before, let alone fighter jets, to say this would be a generational leap would be an understatement. How soon is tomorrow? While these plans might all seem ambitious, right now that's what all these are, plans. As of today, these technologies are still in development. Experimental aircraft such as the Mitsubishi X-2 Shinshin offer us a brief glimpse of what's to come when it comes to the speed and raw power of the sixth generation. However, getting these already hypersonic aircraft to go faster and run more efficiently may not even prove to be the most remarkable breakthrough for the next generation. With lasers, drones, and AI at the disposal of future pilots, who knows what other technology they will be able to harness and if this is how jets may look in 15 years, imagine what they will be like in a century. Sixth, a windowless drone called the Valkyrie opened its weapon bay doors, the first time it had done so while airborne. Then, it released into the sky below not a bomb, but another, smaller drone, a scout launched into flight from its mid-air berth. Deployed from a mothership into the flight, the drone launched drone ushers in an era of machines sending other machines to fight battles for humans. The XQ-58A Valkyrie drone, with a 28 feet length and 22 foot wingspan, was on its sixth test flight at the Yuma Proving Ground in Arizona. The Valkyrie has flown over the Sonoran Desert around Yuma since 2019, its dark gray body stark against the sun-scorched sands below. 
The smaller drone, the payload released from the Valkyrie Weapons Bay, was an Altius 600. Altogether, the package suggests that the next decade of drone warfare will involve more autonomous machines, working in concert, to ensure that Air Force pilots are only physically present, when really needed. The Valkyrie is part of the Pentagon's search for a capable combat drone that can augment its existing wings of inhabited fighters. It is cheap in relative terms. Designed with a price at around $2 million, the Valkyrie is certainly pricey, but a tiny fraction of the cost of an F-35A stealth fighter used by the Air Force. Meanwhile, the Altius resembles a Predator UAV in miniature, with an upside-down V-tail on its approximately three-foot-long body. Its wings, for feet in either direction from the fuselage, unfold upon release, making it easy to launch from a tube, shove out of a helicopter, or, in this case, drop into flight from a bomb bay. Like the plane-sized Predator, the Altius has a pusher propeller for power and features a rotating camera. In flight, the Altius cruises at 69 miles per hour, though it's capable of bursts as fast as 100 miles per hour. At cruising speed, it can fly for over four hours and at a range of 276 miles. That's roughly the distance between Boston and Philadelphia. It is primarily a reconnaissance drone, but that camera pod on the nose can be swapped out and replaced. Alternative payloads include electronic warfare, jammers, and kinetic, explosives, turning the scout into a weapon ready to disable or destroy whatever it is pointed at. AI, which makes the Altius, also makes AI for the drone that allows one human to control multiple aircraft in flight. Previously, that control system allowed a passenger in a helicopter to control for Altius drones at once. That sort of mostly autonomous operation is essential to make drones that launch drones work, as without it the burden of remote piloting becomes a tremendous amount of mentally taxing labor. Having Valkyries, which deployed the Altius, in fighter wings means that the Air Force can plan for more numbers when it sends vehicles on missions. These planes can fight over wider stretches of sky, hunt for hostile aircraft or targets on the ground, and generally support the human-piloted craft shepherding drones through the sky. Uncrewed aircraft like these could be robotic companions for inhabited fighter jets. Kratos, the makers of Valkyrie, boasted in 2018 that the drone would have a maximum range of over 3,450 miles, though recent estimates have scaled that back by about 1,150. Launching a pair of Altius scouts could expand that reach by hundreds of miles. It could also allow for a greater concentration of force, with multiple drone-launched drones converging on the same point, guiding precision weaponry or clearing a path for other attacks. In an effort to ensure that the drones are viable into the future, both Valkyrie and Altius can swap out part of their airframe for new components. This modularity ensures that, so long as the airframe is effective, it will be easy to add new sensors, payloads, and other hardware. This general strategy is part of a broader doctrinal change, incorporating uninhabited craft alongside crewed vehicles to adapt the force for the expected aerial battlefields of tomorrow. The Valkyrie is also a crucial part of the military's Skyborg combat drone program and could pave the way for future autonomous aircraft developments. Central to all of this is the role software will play in coordinating the drones and humans, the drones and each other, and all of this elaborate network of flying robots and people into an order of battle. In order to make the Altius launch from the Valkyrie work, the Air Force Research Lab, 
together with the respective drone makers, build a special carriage and custom code to make it all work together. Deploying drones that can launch drones is the culmination of nearly a century of dreams about launching planes from other planes. Without the need to accommodate awkward human passengers, planes launching planes is much easier. What remains to be seen is how, exactly, the Air Force plans to turn this to war, and if the drone-launched drones have any advantage over drone-launched missiles. Thank for watching. Hello guys, welcome to Wikiwalk's channel where the search for the truth begins. January 17, 2021, 75 Indian drones flew in the sky. What is special about the day? It was Indian Army Day. There is a system which controls the 75 drones. The Indian Army shows that India has Army Combat Swarm drones. When the Indian Army is showing its Army Combat Swarm drones, we must discuss the DARPA projects on drones. What projects does DARPA have in drones? DARPA has already developed many high-tech drones, but they are going to buy a single drone which cost nearly 5 crores. In 2020, three stages of tests have been completed by DARPA. In 2021, DARPA has announced that the fourth and final stage will be completed. What type of drones are they testing? Is this drone the king of drones? Let's discuss in detail. Swamp drones fly in groups. The number of drones make it hard to control the drones. The control unit which controls the drone, if it faces an issue, the drones may fail on their missions. If the drones fail due to technical issues, how will they retrieve the drones? What are the possibilities of retrieving the drones? Drones all over the world are called UAVs, but DARPA calls it GAVs. In 2015, DARPA was involved in developing a project called Icarus, Inbound Controlled Air Releasable Unrecoverable Systems. The words which have been used in Icarus, Unrecoverable and Air Releasable did mean something. From a mothership, these unrecoverable drones will be launched. The drones will try to destroy the enemies. We'll discuss the term called unrecoverable. These drones will not have a high level of combustion power. In 2015, DARPA was successful in developing swamp drones. But DARPA, after years, wanted the drones to be recoverable. After launching from the mothership, the swarm drones will hit the enemies, destroy military installations, causing havoc and then they have to return to the mothership. They also thought of refueling the drones while in the missions. Can drones be refueled mid-air? DARPA's Kremlin air vehicles will contain jet engines. One drone will cost rupees 5 crore. The payload of the GAVs will be high-tech. When the GAVs become swamp drones, DARPA can conduct many high-tech warfare. These GAVs are capable of refueling in mid-air through a socket linked to the refueled aircraft. Now, you may have a doubt. Why does DARPA develop the expensive GAVs? We should understand the high-tech in these GAVs. One GAV is capable of communicating with the mothership from where it was launched. It also has the ability to communicate with other GAVs. So when drones communicate with each other, there are possibilities they can become an antenna. If this antenna has been formed by the drones, they can process the enemy's radar systems and signals. These GAVs will identify themselves as F-16 jet fighters, MiG-29 jet fighters or any other military aircraft. The GAVs will send signals to the enemy base stations. 
The GAVs will be launched from the C-130. These drones are called X-61As. So these X-61As will emit the signals of the aircraft which are flying above and behind them. This will confuse the enemy's radar systems. The enemy will not be able to target a single aircraft because of the swarm drone numbers. These drones are equipped with jet engines, so the speed of the drones are matched with the jet fighters. So this makes the SAMs surface-to-air missiles useless. If the enemy has launched an aircraft against a jet fighter or a bomber, these drones will jam the signal of the enemy aircraft. So these drones can act as a signal jammer. So the GAVs will form a network against the enemies and this network will be hard for the enemies to handle. This network will contain radar system, decoy information, jammer system. These all will be done through system of systems communications. The mothership which launched the drones will keep a close eye on these drones. So through this the GAVs will be a huge problem for the enemy. The world is now going after UAVs, but DARPA's project GAVs is a step ahead of the world. In 2019, China developed this technology. In 2020, America had high-tech swamp drones. But in 2021, this technology will be at its peak. Through America's DARPA project called GAVs, many countries across the world will start their own research on GAVs. Does India have an alternative for GAVs? What is Russia's research against the GAVs? What is Israel's alternative version of GAVs? Let's discuss in another video. Please search for the Gremlin project. There is a lot of information available. If you know the information, please comment and share it with us. Comments about this video are most welcome. Please. In the past, predictions about future warfare have often put too much emphasis on new technologies and assumed only one country would have access to them. In the 19th century, the speedy victory of the Prussian army over France convinced European powers that rapid mobilizations by rail, quick-firing artillery, and a focus on blitz attacks would make war short and decisive. Those ideas were proven wrong at the beginning of the First World War. Countries went in already celebrating the war, thinking that it would be quick and painless. But the four years of trench warfare on the Western Front proved them wrong. Then, in the 1930s, it was believed that the aerial bombardment of cities would prove devastating enough to prompt almost immediate surrender. But England's refusal to give in after years of bombardment from the Luftwaffe once again proved them wrong. And when America demonstrated in the first Gulf War what a combination of its precision-guided munitions, surveillance, space-based communication, and stealth technology could achieve, many people assumed that in the future, the West would always be able to rely on swift, painless victories. But after the terrorist attacks on 9-11 and a decades-long conflict in the Middle East, the changing landscape of war proved once again difficult to predict. As a result, the predictions we'll lay forward will be limited to the next 20 years or so, and will focus on several long-term trends in warfare that can be identified with greater confidence. In the past half-century, wars between states have become exceedingly rare, and those between great powers and their allies almost non-existent, mainly because of the mutually destructive power of nuclear weapons, international legal constraints, 
the connectedness of global economies and the declining appetite for violence among relatively prosperous societies. On the other hand, intrastate or civil wars have been relatively numerous, especially in fragile or failing states, and have usually proved long-lasting. Climate change, population growth, and sectarian or ethnic extremism are likely to ensure that these kinds of smaller, more localized wars continue. And increasingly, they'll be fought in urban environments, if only because by 2040, two-thirds of the world's population will be living in cities. Intense urban warfare, as demonstrated by the recent battles for Aleppo and Mosul in the fight against ISIS, has proven to be a slow grind, fought in close quarters, and sometimes literally street by street. The rise of urban conflicts will also limit the use of traditional weapons of war, like tanks, artillery, and bombers, and will push countries to develop ever more precise weapons, like drones capable of precisely eliminating targets in populated city centers. And these conflicts will continue to present difficult problems with avoiding civilian casualties. Another reason conflicts won't be fought on traditional battlegrounds is the rise of near instantaneous weapon systems. In the past, a jet flying over enemy territory mainly had to worry about being targeted by rockets or rapid-fire guns. These all took time to reach the jet. But now, the development of laser weapons offers the possibility to instantly and precisely hit a target with weapons that move at the speed of light. And the rise and strength of individual weapon systems, like railguns and more powerful bombs, present the possibility of centralized expensive weapon systems, like aircraft carriers, being taken out by single shots and causing devastating losses. This fear has existed ever since the Cold War, when countries realized military air bases would be the targets of first strikes in an effort to keep a nation's air force from taking off the ground. This has and will continue to incentivize governments to create distributed weapon systems. A prime example is a country like Germany, who maintains highway strips, paved ground alongside highways that could act as small air bases across the country in times of crisis. This would allow the nation's air force to continue operating, even if centralized military airports were destroyed. Today, the U.S. government operates hundreds of forward operating bases around the world, some no more than landing strips cut out from the jungle. And China has built up atolls for military bases spread throughout the South Pacific. With these, powerful countries try to spread their weapons capabilities across wider areas, increasing their utility and protecting them with distance. Another trend we'll see, instead of all-out warfare, is strategic destabilization, as countries like Russia attempt to operate in the gray zone, taking calculated risks as to the extent of cyber warfare they can dole out on their adversaries without risking escalation. And Russia isn't the only one turning to cyber warfare. In 2005, when the U.S. wanted to disable Iranian nuclear centrifuges at the Natanz facility, they didn't launch aerial strikes and risk an all-out war. Instead, they enlisted the help of the NSA and Mossad to take down the plants via cyber warfare. And cyber warfare, unlike more traditional forms of warfare, offers the possibility of attacking an enemy facility without them ever learning who is behind the attack. While it may seem that asymmetries of power will increase as specific nations like the US and China pour money into their military R&D divisions, the rise of third world countries out of poverty is likely to increase the so-called number of players in the game. As these countries become wealthier, they'll develop their own military forces. And while these forces will still pale in comparison to those of first world countries, they'll allow their nations to exert more influence in their immediate international community. This will push out wealthier countries that have traditionally tried dominating the international politics of countries in Central and South America, Africa, and the South Pacific. 
Even though full-scale interstate warfare between great powers remains unlikely, there is still room for less severe forms of military competition. In particular, both Russia and China now seem unwilling to bow to international pressures. Russia by annexing Crimea and destabilizing Ukraine, and China by building militarized artificial islands and exerting force in disputes with regional neighbors. In the 21st century, both China and Russia have invested in a wide range of capabilities to counter America's presence in their respective regions. In military terms, these tools are what are known as anti-axis aerial denial, or A2AD systems. They include a whole host of defensive military technologies, like advanced cruise missiles and mines. Their goal isn't to go to war with the U.S., but by beefing up defensive fortifications, they want to make an American intervention more risky and more costly. Another issue that has loomed large over international conflicts for decades are nuclear weapons and the threat of mutually assured destruction. But this has offered a tantalizing possibility. If a country could neutralize enemy ballistic missiles, they would no longer have to fear a nuclear attack and could act however they wanted, largely unchecked. This need to neutralize nuclear threats has pushed nations to develop means of disabling them. Russia and China now fear that technologies currently in development could allow the U.S. to threaten their nuclear arsenals without resorting to a nuclear first strike. America has been working on a concept known as conventional prompt global strike for over a decade. The idea is to deliver a conventional warhead at hypersonic speeds, at up to five times the speed of sound, through even the most densely defended airspace. Possible targets include enemy communication satellites, command centers for those A2AD systems, nuclear facilities, and even incoming ICBMs. These missiles, mixed with good old cyber warfare, could potentially protect a nation from enemy nuclear threats. And the last major trend is that the domain of conflicts will only increase. 9,000 years ago, warfare was limited to land. Then it exploded into naval conflicts. And in the 20th century, we saw armed conflicts take to the skies, aboard planes, missiles, and eventually ICBMs. Going into the future, as the domains of human existence expand, so too will the domains of potential conflict. Everything from deep oceans to the Arctic to outer space are now perceived as gateways to economic and strategic advantage, and so nations will vie to maintain their dominance in them. But whatever the future holds, hopefully we'll all be alive to see it. essential asset in military interventions. Now the preferred means of carrying out reconnaissance and observation, the drone is a source of fascination. As France and the UK prepare to work together to develop futuristic drones capable of carrying out strikes on the enemy, the Journal de la Défense takes a closer look at this rapidly evolving military resource. Un drone 
Max est un appareil. A drone is an aerial vehicle with no pilot on board. And is either fully autonomous or piloted remotely from a ground station. Et pour faire la différence avec un. Unlike a missile, for example, the drone is used multiple times. Réutilisation, ça peut être un It might be a land vehicle, a surface vessel, or even a submarine. So if it's automated, piloted remotely to carry out a mission and be retrieved afterwards, whatever kind of environment it's in, it can be considered a drone. There are different kinds of drones, ranging from the small to the large. From the size of a pen to the size of a Boeing. Discreet and robust, drones are used to gather and send information in real time, all along the chain of command. To do that, the armed forces mainly use airborne drones. This, for example, is a close-range reconnaissance drone, known as a DRAC. It's hand-launched and travels at a speed between 60 and 90 kilometers per hour. It could be compared to a pair of long-range binoculars for ground troops. It provides immediately available intelligence for troops. What's behind a ridge? What's around the next bend? The kind of information that's very important for ensuring the security of troops on the ground. There was a real change in the 90s with the Gulf War. And just before that, with the rise of computers that allowed technologies to be interconnected. That interconnection enabled different branches of the armed forces, or even different allies, to work together jointly using these systems. The STDI, Interim Tactical Drone System, provides troops with reconnaissance directly in the field, flying at altitudes of up to 3,500 meters. It can detect a light vehicle six kilometers away. This one will have a range of a few dozen kilometers, stay in the air for a few hours, and provide all the troops on the ground with intelligence on the next phase of maneuvers. What they'll be doing in the next six to eight hours, so they can ready their next course of action. The Air Force's drones, as big as actual planes, can operate up to 900 kilometers from their base, the distance between Paris and Rome. They're known as MAIL drones, which stands for Medium Altitude Long Endurance. On est clair pour engagement du target restant. They provide global intelligence on all interventions and guide decisions or large-scale maneuvers at the highest level. Currently, male drones are used extensively, particularly in the Sahel-Saharan Strip. They provide long-range intelligence on this vast territory. Most of the pilots operating these drones are ex-fighter pilots. Their roles include facilitating the work of the ground or air combat units by helping to identify potential targets. 
À la différence des avions qui... Euh, Unlike planes which fly over the zone, take a photo and return to base a few hours later, euh, sur leur base aérienne, the drone is intrinsically designed to stay over its objective. A vocation à rester maraudé au-dessus de son objectif. It's the difference between intermittent surveillance of a target and its environment and constant surveillance. So this airborne vehicle being piloted from the ground, the pilot isn't on board. That's not because it's dangerous, but because it allows for longer missions. Whereas a fighter plane will fly a four-hour mission, the drone can operate over the target zone for 18 hours. With a pilot on the ground, it allows him to take a step back and get a wider picture of the event. It gives him access to extra sensors that he doesn't have on a fighter plane, in particular image analysis tools. The analyst can examine the imagery in real time, which isn't possible on board of a fighter plane. So the drone speeds up the decision cycle, from the infantry on the ground to the centers of operations based in France. The imagery and intelligence acquired is fed back to them almost immediately. Having a friendly eye in the sky that lets us anticipate the enemy's reactions, both in the immediate environment thanks to its optical sensors, but also at longer ranges of 40 to 70 kilometers with its radar, really does provide valuable support. The Neuron, the experimental combat drone demonstrator in development in Europe since 2003, offers a glimpse of the future. It's been designed to test technologies likely to equip future unmanned combat air vehicles, or UCAVs. Although there's no pilot on board, human input remains at the heart of the system. The vehicle is guided remotely by a crew able to alter its trajectory at any time and retake control. The advantage of the drone is that it can be deployed at any time, any place to look for the intelligence you need. The drone doesn't operate alone. The drone will provide intelligence, identify an enemy or point of interest, but it's the human who ultimately makes the decision. In the future, you might have not just one, but several drones, all launched simultaneously, all communicating with each other to find the intelligence, with one drone pinpointing the enemy's location and another designating the target for neutralization. So that might be a development in the future. Not just one drone, but a number of drones, a group cooperating to accomplish the mission. Pour accomplir la mission. The last 10 years have seen considerable technological and industrial advances. According to experts, global spending on civil and military drone budgets is set to double to almost 12 billion euros by 2022. The civilian military zone industry is experiencing rapid growth, partly thanks to subsidies from the rapid program run by the DGA, the French government's defense procurement agency. Hundreds of SMEs have already benefited from the program in order to trial or develop technologies for military and civilian applications alike. One example is this small business based in Marseille. Created in 2005, it employs 20 people and was responsible for developing the Katsuvea, a marine drone designed for civilian and military use.
What's completely new is the ability to take a submarine robot and get underwater images with a piece of equipment that can be controlled remotely from up to several kilometers away. The surface drone allows the submarine drone to inspect the site by remote control at a distance of up to four or five kilometers. The drone alone can cover an inspection zone that would normally require between 25 and 30 divers. Since its creation, the company has doubled its turnover every three years and has no intention of stopping there. We have other developments in the pipeline to help better see and understand what goes on under the water. And while until now competition with divers has been something of an obstacle, I think we're showing, as with our American competitors, for example, that what we do is more complement than competition. Resupply, rescue or combat, the drones of the future are set to be used in an ever-increasing number of ways. The next step is the micro-drone, a drone you can hold in your hand, the size of an insect that will let you, for example, in urban combat, see what's going on in the next room. Micro-drones, solar-powered drones, nano-drones as small as insects, or morpho-drones that blend into their environment, some of these new designs are already technological reality. However, drones do have some drawbacks. They can be jammed, they can potentially be hacked, whereas it's far more difficult to hack a human being. We're still a long way from humans being replaced by drones. I think we're still just at the beginning, so even though drones have been around for over a century, we're still at the start in terms of using them. We're just finding out. In the future, technological advances will allow us to envisage systems with artificial intelligence. What we see today is just a prelude. For unmanned systems, this is surely... So this is a video I've been planning on making for a while now, well over a year, and it's been one of the most asked for. One of the issues I had making the video is that the topic is so broad. On top of that, the information on how exactly these systems work is highly classified, especially with the newest equipment. Electronic warfare, or EW as you'll often hear it called, can be broken up into several categories, but most broadly, it is the use of any of the electromagnetic spectrum in an attack. The electromagnetic spectrum includes everything from x-rays, to visible light, to infrared and microwaves, and radio waves. They are all the exact same thing. The only difference between them is the wavelength. Electronic warfare can be broken down into three categories. ECM, or electronic countermeasures, ECCM, electronic counter countermeasures, and ESM, electronic support measures. The first category, ECM, is what most people think of, jamming. Jamming is done to degrade the enemy's ability to collect and exchange information therefore limit their ability to attack or defend against your attack. For example, jamming an enemy radar to interfere with their ability to communicate with each other, or jamming a radar so that they cannot obtain usable information from that radar. 
One of the most simple and low-tech versions of this is Chef. While it is technically mechanical and not electronic, it is sometimes included in the category of electronic warfare, and I believe worth discussing. Chef typically consists of thin strips of aluminum that is dropped from an aircraft or launched up into the air. These strips reflect radar waves, creating a whole mess of radar returns, making it difficult to know which return is the real target. And I think it brings up an important point. Jamming, and EW in general, will not necessarily make you invisible. The enemy will still know you are there. In fact, jamming will often alert the enemy that you are there, somewhere. Instead, the purpose of it is to overwhelm the enemy's sensors, so that it cannot distinguish between what is a real target, or return, and what is not. So going back to Chef, it is often used to distract radar-guided missiles, whether they be anti-ship missiles or anti-air missiles, by showing them another target, which they will hopefully go after instead of the real target. Chef has been used extensively ever since the development of radar, and is still used regularly today. Along the same lines as Chef are decoys. Decoys are objects that can be launched and again present the enemy with another target. Some modern aircraft carry several decoys, which can be deployed in the hopes of the enemy missile hitting it instead of the aircraft. An example of this is the ALE-50 towed decoy system, carried by U.S. aircraft like the F-16, F-A-18, and the B-1 bomber, and has reportedly been successfully used in combat. Another type of decoy are pretty much small, unmanned aircraft themselves which are launched from an aircraft and can fly off themselves, attracting the attention of the enemy and the enemy's fire. Weapons like MALT, or the miniature air launch decoy, is an example. Some of these decoys can emit radio waves as well, copying that of manned aircraft to further deceive an enemy into thinking that the decoy is an actual manned aircraft. There is also a jamming version of the MALT, called the MALT-J. This decoy is able to actively jam enemy radars, as well as acting as a decoy. The next is arguably the more exciting method of electronic warfare. That is jamming by actively sending out your own signals. This has been around for a while, but really took off during the Cold War. Now there are many, many methods of doing this. Way too many to adequately cover here. Also, techniques and methods have changed with the advent of things like phased array radar, which these methods, as they are still relatively newer, are highly classified. In fact, you could say that they are some of the most closely held secrets today. But we know some of the basic techniques. Most simplistically, a radar will emit a signal and bounce off an aircraft and return to the radar. From the time this takes, it'll know exactly how far away the aircraft is from the radar. When jamming, the aircraft is actively emitting signals back to the enemy radar itself so that the enemy does not know if the signals it is receiving are theirs or fake ones. So, if it was a surface-to-air missile sight radar, the jamming aircraft would send back signals, at the same frequency, to the radar. Some may arrive earlier, some later, than the real return. Since the radar uses the time it takes for a signal to return to calculate the range, an aircraft jamming would appear to constantly change distances. Also, depending on the type of radar, Jamming in this manner can also create the appearance of the aircraft being on different bearings as well. As the radar rotates, it is looking in different directions for aircraft. If the jammer sends a signal when the radar is pointed in a different direction, 
it will appear to the radar that there is an aircraft in that direction. With the two of these combined, a radar will get returns from all different distances and in different directions. The point of doing this is to hopefully not allow the radar to calculate a firing solution, as it cannot pinpoint the aircraft's location. A similar method can be used to also jam airborne radars. Here's a quick clip from a game called DCS showing a similar pattern as before. The radar is getting many returns and cannot pinpoint the distance of the jamming aircraft. Radio waves are subject to the inverse square law, meaning that if you double the distance, the power is four times less. So in jamming, it's important to have a very powerful system. With radar, the signal is subject to the inverse fourth power, as the signal has to travel from the radar, bounce off the object, and then return back to the radar. Because of this, when an aircraft is attempting to jam a radar, whether it is a ground-based radar for a SAM system or against another aircraft, jamming is more effective from a distance. As the two get closer, there is a point where the radar return exceeds the power of the jamming. This is called burn-through, at which point the jamming is in essence useless. Another method is to jam communications. This has become somewhat less effective in modern days, but works by blasting radio signals on the same frequency to create interference. Like somebody shouting while you're trying to talk, so the other person cannot make out what you are saying. This method can be used with voice communications, so that the two enemy units cannot communicate, or even on wireless networks exchanging data packets. Russia in general has invested much into jamming. One interesting system is called the Murmansk BN. The system is a large, very powerful electronic warfare platform that has the ability to monitor or jam wireless communications over a very long distance. Russia claims it has a range of 3,000 kilometers and up to 5,000 under ideal situations, like weather. Four of these systems can be seen just south of Sevastopol, Crimea. If those ranges are to be believed, that would cover all of Europe and the entire Middle East. But even with more conservative estimates of the range, it can cause serious issues for militaries operating in the Black Sea and most, if not all, of Ukraine. Jamming GPS is another major one in modern warfare, and jamming GPS signals is not that difficult. The relatively weak signals meant that even back during the Gulf War, when GPS was brand new, Several Iraqi units were able to disrupt the system with fairly inexpensive and crude electronics. Events recently in Syria have shown just how susceptible GPS is to jamming. There have also been many reports in places like Norway, where Russia has been interfering with GPS navigation. And this isn't limited just to GPS, but all navigational satellite systems, be it Russia's GLONASS or China's Beidou-2. They are all susceptible to jamming. And the issue is, many modern weapons are reliant on these systems for guidance. It's a major problem in modern warfare, the over-reliance on modern technology. This fact has not gone unnoticed, though. Many weapons have more than one form of guidance. For example, the newest Stormbreaker, or SDB-2 Glide Bomb, uses both GPS and inertial guidance, along with active radar and infrared homing. Jamming, and electronic warfare in general, has been a field that has seen much research into recently, with the rise of drones. 
there are the more famous examples, like when Iran managed to bring down the U.S. RQ-170 in 2011. But with the rise of small, cheap consumer drones, co-opted for military use, it has become a real problem. These drones can be packed with explosives, and their small size and low cost means that they pose a threat to targets generally considered to be safe. In August of 2018, the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, was nearly assassinated by two drones armed with explosives while he was giving a speech. And just recently, Heathrow Airport in London was shut down after drones were sighted, creating a risk to airplanes. So defending against these threats have become vital. These drones can cost a couple hundred dollars, while air defense systems can cost tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars per missile. Finding a way of jamming these drones, therefore, has become a priority. Russia has been known to operate such equipment and has used it to defend their air base in Syria. And advanced Russian systems have been appearing in eastern Ukraine as well, disabling Ukrainian government drones conducting reconnaissance. Other, less well-known forms of jamming are used regularly. The U.S. presidential motorcade carries radio jammers to make coordinating any attack much more difficult and can't be seen anytime the president is traveling. Counter countermeasures have also been devised to defeat or mitigate the effects of electronic warfare. This falls into the category of ECCM. One such method is to use weapons that could home in on the jamming signal. These guidance systems, instead of emitting a signal, will pick up the jamming and follow it as it gets stronger until it reaches the location that it is being broadcasted from. Another method includes constantly changing the frequencies of the radar. This way, a jammer would have a much more difficult time knowing which frequency to jam, or force the jammer to jam many different frequencies at once, which spreads out the jammer's power, weakening it on any individual frequency. AESA radars are a good example of this. Older radars could not easily change their frequency, therefore making the jammer's job much easier, as it knew which frequency the target would be operating on. AESA radars are electronic and can easily shift frequencies. This greatly increases the difficulty in jamming them. Modern radars have made jamming much more difficult as well, as their computing and processing power has increased exponentially allowing them to detect minute differences in signals and identify which signals are real and which ones are false. Also, other forms of sensors and guidance can negate radar jamming. For example, infrared search and track, or IRST. These can be used to detect and track targets that are either jamming or are stealthy, which make them harder to detect on radar. Although they do have some downsides, weather can impact their performance, and they do not have as long of a range as radar. Russia is known to use many of these IRST systems on their aircraft, surface-to-air missile systems, and also operate long-range IR missiles. And that brings up another topic. Most of this video have discussed electronic warfare pertaining to radar and radio waves. But EW encompasses the entire EM spectrum that includes visual and infrared. While these areas have not been exploited to the same level as radio waves, there are some systems operational. One example is the ALQ-144. Over 8,000 of the 144 and its upgrades and variants have been built and is used by more than 20 nations. The system protects against IR-guided missiles, such as MANPADs, by radiating controlled pulses of infrared energy 
Another system uses lasers, which are aimed at the incoming missile's seeker head, and steer them away from the target. Also, although it is, again, mechanical, flares are used to throw off IR-guided weapons and sensors. Like chaff, they are typically dropped from aircraft. They work by creating a powerful IR signal, which hopefully the incoming missile will lock onto instead of your aircraft. And the final category is ESM, or Electronic Support Measures. This term can often be used interchangeably with ELINT, or Electronic Intelligence. It is collecting information from radar, radio communications, and any other system that emits a signal, and using that information to detect, classify, analyze, and even spy on a potential enemy. Doing this can give you information such as what frequencies are being used, so that you can prepare a defense, such as jamming. You've probably heard in the news in the last few years stories about how a U.S. spy plane was intercepted in the Black Sea by Russian interceptor aircraft, or in the South China Sea by Chinese fighters. These events happen semi-regularly. This is what these aircraft are doing, ELINT, or ESM missions, collecting and analyzing emissions from radars and other radio communications. These tasks aren't only carried out by aircraft, though. The Murmansk BN I discussed earlier has the ability to conduct ELIN. These types of missions have been going on for decades. In fact, just before the start of World War II, in the late 1930s, the Germans noticed England was constructing large masts along the coast. Germany at the time was working on developing their own form of radar and believed it was possible that the British were deploying such a system. The Germans took a Zeppelin, loaded it with sensitive electronics, and flew it up and down the coast, listening for any emissions from the masts. These could be considered the first airborne ELINT missions. But the flights failed to detect any signs of an active radar system. As it turns out, the British did have an active radar system, called Chain Home and the Germans had their sensors set to the wrong frequency. There are some historians who argue that this mistake could have changed the course of the war. In the late stages of the Battle of Britain, the Germans could not believe how many fighter aircraft England seemed to have. They seemed to be everywhere, every time the German bombers flew on bombing missions. When in reality, England was running extremely low on usable aircraft. Germany eventually ended the battle, not knowing how close they had come to winning, and the fact that England had very few aircraft remaining, but were able to use them much more effectively with the radar able to vector them. Had Germany continued the battle, they might have won, which could have led to an invasion of England, and possibly changed the course of World War II entirely. Now, obviously, it's impossible to prove that, but it's interesting to think about. But it highlights the importance of Elin, ESM, and electronic warfare overall. Modern warfare and technology has created an entire new battlefield in which each side must fight. NATO actually classifies electronic warfare as its own warfighting environment or domain, just as they fight in any other environment, such as on land, air, sea, and space. And I just want to movies and TV shows have depicted future military conflicts to be waged with laser weaponry 
From Star Wars to Star Trek to the Terminator, there seems to be the idea that lasers are the future. Lasers have actually been in operational use in war for several decades for things like rangefinding and guiding bombs to their target. But slowly, these weapons have become lethal themselves. Lasers destroy targets by burning holes, which hopefully disables them. They can be used against almost anything, including aircraft, missiles, and ships. Laser weapons have several advantages over conventional weapons. Lasers can be used multiple times. They do not require a large arsenal of delicate, heavy, expensive, and space-consuming reloads. This also means that per shot, lasers are much more affordable. A single laser shot from the Law's laser, for example, is said to cost about 50 cents, compared to hundreds of thousands of dollars per missile. Lasers also travel much faster than any projectile. A laser is simply a narrow, highly concentrated beam of light. Light travels at over 670 million miles per hour, or 300,000 kilometers per second, which is hundreds of thousands of times faster than any missile or bullet. This allows the operator to almost instantaneously hit any target within its field of view. Light is also only slightly affected by gravity and exterior forces like wind, so a laser weapon can aim directly at its target without having to have to compensate for these forces. This also eliminates the need for complicated terminal guidance systems. And also, a laser can operate outside of the visible light spectrum. This makes the weapon invisible to the naked eye. However, there are several issues with these weapons. One is that firing such a high-powered laser creates a large amount of heat. This heat needs to be dispersed before it can damage the weapon. The heat can therefore limit the number of times the laser can fire before it needs to cool down. Lasers, unlike missiles, also do not maneuver in flight. This means they can only hit what they can see. If an aircraft is obscured behind a hill or below the horizon, the laser cannot engage it. Also, the atmosphere tends to absorb and scatter the laser beam. Humidity, fog, and dust in the air can diminish the power of the laser over longer distances. And each type of laser itself has its own issues. Chemical lasers are very large. Gas-powered lasers require large amounts of energy. Fiber-based lasers consume even more energy. And solid-state lasers tend to produce lower-powered lasers and cannot fire as far. Nations have sought to weaponize lasers ever since the first laser was created. Some notable weapons projects include President Ronald Reagan's Star Wars, which planned to use space-based lasers to destroy enemy ballistic missiles. The YAL-1 airborne laser, which was a chemical laser on board of a Boeing 747, also meant to destroy enemy ballistic missiles. And the Soviet Polyus spacecraft, whose purpose was to destroy enemy satellites in space. The first laser weapon to be used on the battlefield for the purpose of destruction is Zeus. Zeus is a 10-kilowatt solid-state laser that is mounted on top of U.S. Humvees and used to destroy landmines and unexploded ordinances. The Laser Weapon System, or LAWS, is a laser currently operational on board the U.S. Navy ship the USS Ponce. It uses around a 30-kilowatt solid-state laser powerful enough to disable small boats and UAVs in a matter of seconds. The Navy reported that the system works perfectly. However, the laser is far from ideal. It has a very short range, which is classified, but is believed to be less than a mile, and a 30-kilowatt laser is not very powerful. The U.S. military's stated minimum threshold for a tactical weapons-grade laser is 100 kilowatts. The USS Ponce was deployed with the laser in the Persian Gulf, but has since returned to the United States and is scheduled to be decommissioned in 2018. The Helads and the HelMD are proof-of-concept weapons designed to shoot down rockets, artillery shells, and mortars. They use more powerful solid-state lasers that are over 100 kilowatts. 
These systems are both still under development and plan to lead to land-based, ship-based, and airborne laser weapons in the future. Israel has also deployed a weapon system called Iron Beam. It is also designed to shoot down rockets, artillery shells, and mortars fired at Israel. It is not fully clear if the weapon is currently operational. If it is, it would be the first laser CRAM system. On the other side of laser weaponry is defending against laser weaponry. The Chinese are known to be working hard developing laser shielding. While still in its infancy, protection against lasers may consist of reflective, mirror-like coatings, which can reflect most of the laser away, ablative materials similar to heat shields that protect spacecraft during reentry, and smoke screens of a substance that can scatter the laser beam. Over the years, nearly 100 laser weapon projects have been in development. Almost all of them have been canceled due to various technical reasons. So despite the recent entrance of lasers into the modern battlefield, there are still a lot of problems to overcome. For now, lasers will remain confined to short-range defensive roles on board large, powerful platforms. It will still be some time before they are ready to even begin to replace conventional weaponry. Wants to build a space force. President Trump announced he planned to have it up and running by 2020. A space force would be the sixth branch of the U.S. military, after the Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard. While the idea of a space force at first may seem absurd, there is a need for nations to protect their assets in space, especially considering how much the world currently relies on space-based systems. The idea of space-based defenses is nothing new and goes back to the early Cold War era. Both the Soviet Union and U.S. launched early warning satellites. The Soviet Union placed 23-millimeter guns on board their Almaz space stations to defend themselves and tried to launch the Polyus spacecraft armed with a megawatt-power laser. In terms of the U.S. and a dedicated space force, the idea was first discussed as early as 1999 in a policy paper by Senator Robert Smith. Real discussion on creating a separate force began in 2017. Then in March of 2018, President Trump signed what is called the Space Policy Directive 3 to begin work on space traffic management to protect assets in space. Then in early August, Vice President Mike Pence announced the planned creation of a U.S. Space Force by 2020. One thing I've seen people confused about is treaties regarding the militarization of space. Currently, the only treaty that would have any impact is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, and maybe to a lesser extent, SALT II. Both, however, only ban the placing of nuclear weapons, along with other weapons of mass destruction, in space. It does not ban space-based weapons in general. And it's also not clear as to what classifies as a weapon of mass destruction. For example, the popular rods from God idea, in which a weapon, without a warhead, is dropped from orbit down to Earth at incredible speeds. The kinetic energy alone is enough to cause massive damage. Whether this can be considered a weapon of mass destruction or not is not clear. And if not, where is that line? It is worth noting that the Outer Space Treaty does ban weapons and military bases on celestial bodies, including the moon, asteroids, and other planets. And there may already be weapons in space we don't know about. I am by no means a conspiracy theorist, but I do think there is a possibility that either the US, Russia, or China, or even all three, already have weapons in space. Right now, the US Air Force is responsible for warfare in space. A space force would consolidate the current programs from various branches into one. The idea to create a space force is not unsimilar to the creation of the Air Force itself. During World War II, the U.S. Army was responsible for aerial warfare. Its air service was called the U.S. Army Air Force. 
With the rapid advancement in technology and growth of aerial warfare in general, the U.S. created a separate force, which became the U.S. Air Force. The U.S. Space Force would be the same. As I said, the U.S. Air Force is currently responsible for space <coughs> under a section called the Air Force Space Command. Their mission is to launch and protect satellites and the use of those satellites. So if the Air Force already has a space command, what is the need for a new separate space force? In the last few decades, a relatively large percentage of the communications infrastructure has moved from land into space. GPS satellites not only provide people with their locations so they can navigate, but provides data for farmers, the transportation industry, the scientific community, and many others, which all rely on GPS satellites. The same is true with telecommunications satellites. Virtually all sectors of the economy rely in some way on satellites in space. The loss of any of these systems can easily cost billions of dollars in damage, food shortages, financial system failures, and a large number of fatal accidents. Not to mention how much the U.S. military relies on satellites for navigation, communication, intelligence, and weapons guidance. Since the creation of the Air Force Space Command in 1983, the need to protect these systems has grown exponentially. Not only from the reliance on these systems, but also the increasing capability built to destroy them. Whether you are the U.S., China, or Russia, or any other nation, protecting these space-based systems is vital. All three of the countries have worked on, or already have weapons operational that can destroy satellites in space. The U.S. has demonstrated this capability multiple times, with the missile called the ASM-135 ASAT for anti-satellite. The missile was fired from an F-15 and destroyed a satellite orbiting at an altitude of over 500 kilometers. In 2008, the U.S. Navy fired a modified SM-3 missile, a weapon designed to shoot down ballistic missiles at a malfunctioning spy satellite, successfully destroying it. China successfully destroyed a satellite in 2007 with a missile called the SC-19, which is based on the DF-21 ballistic missile. Since then, they have invested heavily in the technology. They tested another system in 2013 that reached an altitude of nearly 30,000 kilometers, which is close to the altitude of geosynchronous orbit, an orbit used by many communication satellites. Russia as well as tested ASAT weapons, most notably is the PL-19, or Nadal, which has been test-launched six times, most recently in March of 2018. And just recently, a Russian satellite that was launched in 2017 is exhibiting some strange behaviors, which the U.S. and some European nations believe may be an anti-satellite weapon. In the face of growing threat from anti-satellite weapons, numerous methods of defending against them have been discussed. One being defensive maneuvers by the satellites, such as a slight changing of its inclination. Because of the difficulty in shooting down a satellite at such high altitudes and speeds, the interceptor needs to be positioned almost perfectly along the path of its orbit. A small change in inclination could put the interceptor out of range. Another technique the U.S. has discussed is launching several smaller, less expensive, single-mission satellites instead of the current larger, more expensive satellites that perform numerous missions and tasks. This would create many more targets for anti-satellite weapons to destroy. As the technology increases and the cost to get to space decreases, this is becoming more feasible. Other more encompassing measures could include things like arming satellites with defenses, such as direct energy or even kinetic weapons, and even launching satellites for the sole purpose of defending other satellites. In the 1980s, the U.S. began research on creating a system to do just that, called the Strategic Defense Initiative, better known as Star Wars. 
Part of that project called for several dozen satellites to be armed with thousands of kinetic kill vehicles to defend the U.S. not only from ICBMs, but also other threats in space. These options, however, will not come without a massive influx of money for research, development, testing, procurement, and operations. But with a dedicated military branch for warfare in space, these projects may, one day again, see daylight. So the U.S. Space Force isn't going to be sending up any space troops or building the USS Enterprise from Star Trek anytime soon. But if history is any indication, space will only become more and more important in the future. Over the decades, the cost to get to space has decreased drastically. SpaceX's Falcon 9 cost around $5,000 per kilogram sent to low Earth orbit for commercial customers. In the early 2000s, these costs were more than double, even triple that. In the near future, with the Falcon Heavy and reusability, that price could drop to under $1,000 per kilogram. With these lower costs, access to space is no longer limited to superpowers. Today, smaller nations and even smaller private companies operate a number of satellites in orbit. And those lower costs are being taken advantage of by the militaries of several nations. And this trend will only continue. So whether it requires a separate branch or not, Warfare in space will only become more and more prevalent. Who knows, maybe there will be a ship not unlike the USS Enterprise we will see in our lifetimes. An interesting thing occurred. The problem is becoming less of having the capability to do something, and more what to do with the capabilities you have. The internet is a good example of this. For pretty much all of human history, the problem was the lack of information. Now, it's too much information, and trying to sort through it and pick out what is important. Warfare used to be real divided. You had tanks fighting tanks on land, ships fighting ships, and aircraft overhead fighting each other and trying to shoot down attacking enemy bombers. Today, you still have land, sea, and air, but also now space and cyber added into it. The real push recently, and into the future, is joint operations between all branches of the military, fighting wars across every domain effectively and efficiently. And this is far from easy to do on a grand scale. Russia has done this pretty well with the battalion tactical groups, which are able to incorporate things like tanks, artillery, recon, air defenses, and electronic warfare on a smaller scale, but across entire theaters of war, trying to figure out where your assets are, how they can best be used together to fully counter and destroy your enemy, and how to structure it all in a way that is efficient is a completely different ballgame. Then the advent of things like drones that can be carried and deployed by individual units to gather intelligence, sharing that information with who needs it most, for example. Being able to have units communicate with air support or other recon assets, satellites, and other units. And this has all been and continues to be the big push in the U.S. right now. Shifting to a networked force, which improves sharing of information and collaboration to increase situational awareness and, therefore, fighting effectiveness. It also allows you to do much more with less, either freeing up other assets to fight elsewhere, or even doing more with a smaller defense budget in general. The U.S. Army, for example, by the end of the decade, wants to shift to more division-centric operations instead of a modular brigade combat team-centric operation. This greatly increases complexity, but affords them much more multi-domain capabilities coming from the division level, such as incorporating space and cyber mentioned earlier but on a somewhat bigger strategic level change, is shifting its attention to the Pacific. Throughout the Cold War, the largest and most prevalent potential battlefield was Europe. The Soviet Union had some forces in the east, and they had their Pacific fleet, but the real focus was Europe. Soviet and Warsaw Pact forces storming across West Germany was the fear. 
So the U.S. attention was more, unsurprisingly, in that region. But now, Russia is just not the same threat that it used to be to the U.S. NATO has expanded nearly right up to Russia's doorstep, and Russia just doesn't have anywhere near the capabilities it once had. So now, instead of Europe, it's the Pacific. China is a new Soviet Union in the eyes of the U.S. This change really kicked off under President Obama, with the moving of ships, submarines, and other forces into the region, as well as attempting to strengthen ties with the allies there, like Japan, South Korea, etc. World War II left the U.S. in an extremely advantageous position in the Pacific, with bases in Guam, Okinawa, and others throughout the region. But as China continues to grow, the U.S. will be focusing more and more attention into the area. China's growth also makes neighboring countries concerned, such as they're constructing artificial islands in the South China Sea. And this opens up the possibility for the U.S. to gain allies and attempt to further strengthen relations with existing ones. Taiwan, for example, has been a huge topic recently in the news. But it's also a balancing act. The U.S. shifting more military assets to the area threatens further worsening relations with China, but also with their allies as well. U.S. military bases in Japan and South Korea, for example, have been the source of political problems and animus toward the U.S. So, in the next 10 years, it'll be an area of great interest not only to the U.S. from a military perspective, but also politically. As far as new weapons of war, at the rate of current procurement, not much is expected to change in the next 10 years. The F-35 program, for example, took nearly 20 years from the beginning of the Joint Strike Fighter program till it became operational, and even then, in very small numbers and with numerous problems to resolve. But one of the biggest changes that's going to be coming is in air defense. Now that the U.S. has a potential enemy, China, with capabilities approaching its own and getting better every year, and the widespread use across the world of small, inexpensive drones, the U.S. again has to focus on air defense. And we've seen a bigger push recently toward directed energy defenses like lasers. The LAWS laser system a few years ago, for example, and just recently the Odin laser installed on an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. But, in my opinion, one of the biggest technological changes is the PSQ-90, or ENVG. It combines night vision along with thermal imaging, and the even newer ENVGB. These have brought night vision and situational awareness practically to the level seen in sci-fi movies and video games. It can display information right into the device from any other linked unit. This means a drone flying overhead, or really any other force operating nearby, can send a live feed that its operator can see. It can also send out what it's seen to any other unit, all giving an unprecedented level of situational awareness. The challenge, though, like any other new technology, is learning how to use it effectively, figuring out what information is vital, what is not so much, and what just clutters its view and distracts them from completing their mission. It's a real challenge, not only to properly train your forces in its use, but to also integrate it into joint operations, and all that's a level that's affordable and sustainable, which is another major issue. Trying to incorporate all the latest tech into weapon systems have made them extremely expensive to develop and manufacture. It also runs the risk of encountering so many more problems trying to integrate all these technologies it's trying to take advantage of, further increasing costs, and sometimes to the point where it's just become completely unaffordable. The Zumwalt destroyer, for example, where the U.S. just decided to go back and start building more of the previous class destroyers. Or the XM-1202, which would have replaced the Abrams main battle tank. Instead, the U.S. Army decided to just stick with the M1 tanks for the foreseeable future. The F-35 barely survived this process, and it still has issues, along with endless criticism over it and its costs. So, 10 years from now, it'll be an interesting time. 
China will undoubtedly be the cause of the most change in the U.S. military. So how those relations go will determine a lot. Winning a war means. Is it completely invading the mainland U.S. and having it cease to exist? Or maybe just knock the U.S. down in strength to a point where it's no longer any serious threat to China? Or just China able to win a war in the Western Pacific and be able to further exert its power there? A full-blown invasion of the U.S. is unlikely, as it would almost certainly result in a nuclear exchange. So let's ignore that one. And China maybe just invading Taiwan or further extending its power in the region has also been discussed endlessly. So let's go with that middle scenario. A military confrontation between the U.S. and China, where the goal is not to completely eliminate the U.S. as a country, but to end their reign as a sole superpower and dominant force in the world. To do this, China needs to be extremely careful. They are virtually surrounded in the Pacific by countries that don't like them. Any plan they decide on would benefit greatly by reducing the number of enemies it would need to face. This could be done quickly by threatening any other country that intervenes with attack, or slower through political means. But China also needs to be careful in the timing, and how they begin any buildup of a war. Any slow buildup of aggression can and has been met with large changes in U.S. population stance. With the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, the U.S. public became much more supportive of a more aggressive and confrontational foreign policy. In the U.S. election the next year, they elected Republican Ronald Reagan as president, who had promised to greatly expand the military and win the Cold War through strength. Republicans also ended up winning 12 additional seats in the Senate and 34 more in the House of Representatives. And China knows this. They saw how quickly the U.S. could go from being demoralized after the Vietnam War, having a policy of detente, or trying to relax and improve relations with the Soviet Union, and signing arms reductions treaties like the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, Two SALT, or Strategic Arms Limitation Talks agreements in the 70s, to a massive military buildup, including new ballistic missiles, stationing nuclear missiles in West Germany, reviving the B-1 bomber project, and increasing the defense budgets to a level not seen since World War II in the 80s. So, speed would work in China's interest, to try to catch the U.S. off guard and out of position. It takes a long time for the U.S. to prepare and deploy a carrier strike group, one of the U.S.'s main ways of projecting power. Each carrier goes through cycles of being in maintenance, being deployed, or being in port where it could be prepared to be deployed. Carriers are typically deployed about 20% of the time. So, say, if you have 11 active carriers, on average, only two or three would actually be deployed at any given time. Of the remaining 80% of the time, roughly a third of that could be surged into deployment in 30 days, another third within 90 days, and that remaining third under maintenance and would take much, much longer. In addition to that, the U.S. Navy is spread across the world, so it really wouldn't be too difficult for China to be able to catch the U.S. out of position, even with the U.S.'s much larger carrier fleet. So, finally, with all that said, let's get down to the interesting stuff. First, we need a hypothetical scenario. China isn't just going to attack the U.S. for no reason. Let's say they want to take Taiwan, and in doing so, they either feel the need to strike the U.S. forces to limit any intervention, or just want to take advantage of the situation to knock the U.S. back a notch and limit their influence in the Western Pacific. One major tactic that would be utilized is deception. You know full well that your enemy studies you carefully. They look at your forces, predict how you'll fight, and they plan how to counter that. So, you can use that to your advantage. Let them think that things are going exactly as they expected. And then, you can easily surprise them elsewhere. This is a common tactic, and has worked incredibly well when executed properly. The D-Day invasions, for example, during World War II, with what was called Operation Fortitude, 
where they were able to deceive the Germans as to where the invasion would take place. Or during the Gulf War, the U.S. and its allies built up forces to appear that they would invade to liberate Kuwait along the Kuwaiti-Saudi border, which, in response, Iraq built up their forces there to defend against it. They then began a small offensive exactly in the locations they knew Iraq had expected would happen. But, at the same time, they also crossed directly into Iraq, much further to the west, to cut off Iraqi forces in Kuwait. China would undoubtedly need to come up with some sort of similar diversionary attack. They have to get into the minds of U.S. generals and tacticians. They know the U.S. relies heavily on carrier strike groups, for example, and massive Tomahawk cruise missile strikes to project their power. So, they need to figure out a way to negate this. They also know the vast arsenal of intelligence-gathering methods, like signals intelligence, satellite imagery, etc., would make it extremely difficult to pull off any sort of attack without the U.S. seeing it built up first. Any large movement of missiles, or preparing bombers, or large deployments of naval ships would be spotted. It's not like the old days during World War II, where Japan could deploy a large naval force and sneak right up and attack Pearl Harbor without notice. So, they could begin an invasion of Taiwan make everything appear normal, and carry out the operation in a way that the U.S. would expect. They'd ready ballistic missile forces, strike fighters, and interceptor aircraft as if they're preparing to defend themselves from a potential U.S. counterattack. But meanwhile, quietly as possible, prepare for an offensive on U.S. forces. Attacking the U.S. mainland would be too risky, as it would further rile up the U.S. public and international community into action. Plus, the mainland is probably too far away for any conventional attack for China anyway. A more suitable target might be U.S. forces in Okinawa and Guam. If they could somehow threaten South Korea with ballistic missile strikes and diplomacy to keep them out of a fight, and maybe Japan as well, which is less likely, a war could be significantly easier for them. It's easy for Japan or South Korea or any other country to verbally say that they would join in a fight against China in peacetime, but it's a whole other thing to actually do so when the bombs start falling. But still, it's a stretch. But for the sake of this scenario, let's say they're able to sideline at least South Korea due to concerns about China attacking them and concerns North Korea might take advantage of the situation and attack as well. But back to Okinawa and Guam. These are two locations that host large numbers of U.S. forces in the Western Pacific and would really be a setback to the U.S. losing them in a fight. Because of this, the U.S. has them pretty highly defended from airborne attack. Okinawa is littered with Patriot air defense sites, and Guam hosts THAAD, which could shoot down long-range Chinese ballistic missiles fired at it. The U.S. knows the threat Chinese ballistic missiles pose, so China might be more suited not to use them, keep them as a threat, save them for later, and attack with other methods. There are several shipping routes from Hong Kong and Shanghai that pass relatively nearby to Okinawa, and they could use those potentially to covertly invade Okinawa. Troops, tanks, vehicles, etc. could be loaded onto cargo ships, which suddenly turn off a normal course and dash to the island. Just before it gets there, they could launch a dozen or more H-6 bombers, each armed with six CJ-10 cruise missiles to strike targets on the island, like Kadena Air Force Base, the largest U.S. air base in East China, Camp Kistner, a major U.S. Marines logistic base, etc. Loss of Okinawa, even a temporary one, would be a major win for China, enabling them to pass warships and submarines further out into the Pacific. And the submarine threat is one of the biggest dangers to warships. They are extremely difficult to detect and can wreak absolute havoc on ships and aircraft carriers. The U.S. at this point would have to worry not only about China's DF-21D anti-ship ballistic missile force, but also a larger submarine threat further out. 
the immediate concern would then be U.S. and Japanese air attacks coming from mainland Japan. They'd have to dig in and quickly set up defenses with SAM sites, interceptor aircraft to fight them off, etc. Guam would be significantly harder to pull off an attack. While China is the largest exporter in the world and operating a massive number of cargo ships, it would be difficult to pull off a similar style attack so far away with so little support. A more realistic and useful approach might be to hit the U.S.'s naval base Guam, home to Submarine Squadron 15, which could make further naval operations by the U.S. out into the Western Pacific much more difficult. And putting Anderson Air Force Base out of commission, even temporarily, could also really limit the U.S.'s ability to operate bombers into the Western Pacific. Really, the only way China could carry this out would be with the relatively few long-range ballistic missiles they have, things like the DF-26. China has yet to, at least that we know of, deploy long-range cruise missiles on their submarines, like the U.S. does with Tomahawk and Russia with Caliber. They might be able to carry a few of those CJ-10s or land attack variants of their YJ-18 cruise missiles on their newest Type 93 subs, but they really don't have enough of them to really create large enough damage, so they couldn't just sneak up and launch that way. Any destroyers or larger warships would be spotted well before they got within range, and their bomber fleet would have a difficult time reaching Guam unopposed. The final threat that China would really need to deal with is the U.S. and Japanese Navy. As mentioned earlier, the U.S. might have two or three carriers deployed, of which only one, maybe two, might be in the Pacific and able to intervene in a reasonable time frame. Other threats from destroyers and submarines launching Tomahawk cruise missile strikes on Chinese staging points and beachheads could really set China back, so those need to be dealt with. Again, they have those DF-21Ds that can attempt to hold back any warships operating close by, but how effective they really are remains unknown, especially in wartime conditions. The two aircraft carriers they currently operate are really no match compared to U.S. aircraft carriers, as they are much smaller and carry a fraction of the number of aircraft. But they would still help project power further out if they can keep them safe from attack from air and U.S. and Japanese submarines. China also has a large number of land-based aircraft that could be armed with anti-ship missiles, which could really make life difficult for any enemy ships in the area. China's submarine force is still somewhat lacking when it comes to operating deep out into the Pacific. The vast majority of what they have are conventionally powered. They only operate nine nuclear-powered attack submarines, so they'd have to put all of these into good use to harass the U.S. Navy as much as possible. After this, China would have to dig in, set up air defenses, and prepare for a counterattack. It might take a few days, but U.S. B-52s, B-1Bs, and B-2s could conduct long-range strike missions from the U.S. mainland with tanker support to cross the vast ocean. As time went on, more forces from the U.S. and potentially other allies would begin to arrive in the region as well, making China's task even more difficult. Also, keep in mind, in this scenario, all this is going on at the same time as a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, so additional forces to carry out these operations would be limited. If they could take Taiwan and at least end large-scale fighting within a few weeks and reinforce the island and inflict enough pain on the U.S. and Japan, it's possible they could have a chance to sue for peace and end a war with an advantage. However, if the war continues to drag on for months, ultimately, China would lose any gains they made. So again, speed is key. The U.S. is 10,000 kilometers away, so that buys them time, but only so much. However, as China continues to grow and expand its military, the situation looks less and less favorable for the U.S. and allies in the future. And a similar scenario happening 10 years from now could really play out completely differently.